God in the stillness. Come meet us. Amen. So the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter. That's why it's called an epistle. Epistle just means letter. And it's called 1 Corinthians because we have another letter to the Corinthians, which is called 2 Corinthians. But actually, 1 Corinthians was probably the second letter that was written, and then 2 Corinthians might have been the third or fourth letter that was written. Because in 1 Corinthians, it talks about some other letters that Paul has been writing to this church in Corinth. Now, the church in Corinth apparently had quite a few challenges, so the correspondence was dynamic and two-way and ongoing. And Paul kept writing to advise them and also correct them, and then they would write him back, and then he would write them back, and so on. They were a pretty diverse group of people, and it seems they were a pretty strong-minded group of people, too. I told you last week that the church in Corinth was made up of Jews and Gentiles who had converted to Christian faith. And after their conversion to Christianity, they were trying to figure out which parts of their previous religions they had to leave behind because they were now Christian, and which parts they could incorporate into their Christian practice without any conflict. Also, the people in the church in Corinth were made up of various social strata of the society, and in the church, they mixed together in a way that they did not do in everyday life. So women and men, rich and poor, people from different ethnic backgrounds, now in the church they found that they served alongside one another as one body united in Christ. And this isn't the way the rest of their world worked. And in the church in Corinth at this time, there was also that teaching that I talked about last week that spiritual wisdom and knowledge was superior to anything else, to anything material on earth, to any other spiritual gift, and it was contributing to kind of an elitist attitude within the church because some people had become convinced that they had already arrived spiritually. They were perfect in faith, and therefore they didn't need to worry, really, about anything else, especially not the material needs of the poor. And you might recall that that set of beliefs in particular is the reason why the Corinthians were positioning some of the spiritual gifts ahead of other spiritual gifts, because anything that had to do with, with knowledge or wisdom or something that seemed to be of the spiritual realm, like speaking in tongues, they were seen as better than any other gift. And that's, of course, what brings us to the love chapter 1 Corinthians 13. This verse is so often read at weddings, isn't it? Anybody out there have it read at your wedding? You people? Yes? It is so often read at weddings. And it is certainly beautiful and powerful in the context of two people committing to share the rest of their lives together. But I hate to break it to you. It's actually written to a whole community of faith. It's, it's written to a whole group of people like us gathered here this morning to help them learn how to be the church together, to help them learn how to love as Christ loved. And in the first part of the chapter, which we read last week, verses 1 through 3, um, love is, is put in the place of wisdom. In Corinthian theology saying, oh no, it's not wisdom that's above everything else. It's actually love 
that's above everything else. Because Paul is saying that love or agape is what, what drives our theology, but also our action and our practice of Christian faith. That it's not about how much we know or how much wisdom we gain. It's about having Christ's character of love to dwell within us, to renew us, and then compel us to love others. Because when we have love, we are as Christ is. And so in the section that Paul read for us, wow, Paul Oberg and the Apostle Paul. Wow. Wow. Paul Oberg read for us the Apostle Paul's letter. I just realized that right now. What a gift. It's, it's explaining, right? The beginning starts out by explaining what love is. And the, the version that we read this morning is called the Passion Translation, which is a beautiful, it's almost an interpretation of what we traditionally hear in those verses, the very short, love is patient, love is kind. And this is how that Passion Translation says that love is large and incredibly patient. Love is gentle and consistently kind to all. It refuses to be jealous when blessing comes to someone else. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, positions the nature and the property of love in stark contrast to the attitudes and behaviors reported among the Corinthians. These positive qualities of love are the opposite of the Corinthian behavior that's presented in other places in this letter. And the idea is that the more we become like Christ, the more we will show love to others. And I think because in our day and age, this scripture is so often read at weddings, we often limit this ideal of what love is to marriage. And I have to admit that I want my marriage, and I want your marriage, and I want your lifetime relationships to be full of this kind of love. But 1 Corinthians 13 is directed to how the church is to be the church. And in this community of faith in Corinth, there are springing up some examples of what love is not. And that's where Paul goes next in the, in the next few Verses, And we can assume that, that the things that he's describing of what love is not are exactly what the Corinthians are doing. And so here goes. Love does not brag about one's achievements, nor inflate its own importance. Love does not traffic in shame and disrespect, nor selfishly seek its own honor. Love is not easily irritated or quick to take offense. Now, here's a little confession. When I read these verses, I have to be real honest that these verses remind me of parenting. Because <laughs> no matter how many books I read about the importance of telling children what I want them to do rather than what I don't want them to do, in moments of passion, the love is not instruction slip out of my mouth. So let me give you a few examples that maybe many of us could identify with. When a teenager rolls their eyes for the hundredth time, who among us has snapped, love is not rude? <laughs> or when the baseball team gloats after winning and doesn't even go to shake the hands of the other team, who among us has exclaimed, I can't believe it, love doesn't brag? 
and with another child, grabs all the toys away from my kid. Who among us doesn't pry a toy out of the hand so that our kid will stop screaming, we can give it to them, all the while muttering under our breath, love is not selfish, share the toy. So I know for me, becoming a parent has been one of the deepest ways that my Christian discipleship has grown. And you might identify with this if you have children or youth in your life, either because you are a parent or because you are a teacher, God bless you teachers, or because you are a coach, or because you are a mentor, or because you work with young people in the church or anywhere else. These love is not statements from Paul remind me when I point the finger about what love is not, that I am most often embodying that quality myself. Stop whining. There is no need for you to be irritated. Calm down. How many times is it me who actually needs to stop whining, to let go of irritation, and to take a deep breath? These verses are talking about community of faith, and they're talking about us, the disciples of Jesus, the ones who say that we follow the way of love that Jesus walked. And so that brings us to the final part of what we read today, because Paul begins describing what love does. Love joyfully celebrates honesty and finds no delight in what is wrong. Love is a safe place of shelter, for it never stops believing the best for others. Love never takes failure as defeat, for it never gives up. What would happen in our lives, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our churches, in our communities, if we sat with these words and allowed them to form us, to correct us, to help us replace old habits with you see, Paul invites us to look inward into our own hearts to how we might need to grow, all while hoping for the best in others. This is a call to discipleship if I ever heard one. This is a call to love. I shared with you last week that Bishop Karen Oliveto is the first openly lesbian bishop in the United Methodist Church. And I didn't tell you all in this service, but this is a picture of her with her wife, Robin. And uh, she writes a book called Together at the Table. And I know some of you have read this book. I know uh, at least the viceroy class spent time uh, reading her work and discussing it together. And as a reconciling congregation committed to being in ministry with people of all sexual orientations and gender identities, we celebrate her election. She is the first openly LGBTQ bishop in the United Methodist Church, and she is doing prophetic work. But in this book, she writes about many experiences, and one that I want to share with you today is one that she had soon after being elected as a bishop. When bishops are newly elected, at their first meeting with the Council of Bishops, they're given a special parchment 
I had to look up what parchment is, so I'll just spare you Googling it later. It's like a, a thick, could be paper, but it could be more like leather, kind of engraved, okay? So it's this special document. And on the document, it's personalized with their ordination dates. It used to be that we were ordained deacons and then elders, and now we're provisional elders and then elders, so it would have those two dates on it. And it would have the bishops who were present in each of those ordination services. And then it would also have the date of their Episcopal consecration with the names of bishops who participated in their Episcopal consecration. And so then at the first meeting of the Council of Bishops, the parchments for all the newly elected bishops are lined up and laid out, and all the bishops walk around the tables to sign them. So after the meeting was over, members of the executive team called Bishop Oliveto aside. And they told her that they noticed what had happened to her parchment and that they would order her a new one. And she had anticipated, because she knew that her election had been contentious in some other jurisdiction, she had anticipated that some bishops wouldn't sign her parchment, and she assumed that this was what the executive team was talking about. So she told them there's no need to order a new one. It's okay. But they insisted. And they said they were troubled that some people had actually defaced her parchment. And then she was like, wait, what? Defaced? So apparently two of the bishops had realized that they had accidentally signed her parchment as they were moving through the line, and then they had gone back to cross out their and as Bishop Oliveto prayed and pondered this experience, she was so disturbed. And in her prayer, she began asking questions like, like this. Did, did these two individuals stop and consider how their actions would affect me? Did they pause before scratching their names out, wondering how their etching would look on this official parchment, one that would hang in my office, in her, in Bishop Oliveto's office, and eventually be sent to the UM archives to be kept for history. Did they ever stop to consider my feelings as they sought to erase the tacit <clears throat> approval their signature gave of my episcopacy? Where was their empathy toward a colleague they might have held reservations about, but who was nonetheless still a colleague? These are righteous questions, and they are important questions that move us toward justice. And as you have heard the unfolding of the stories, those are probably questions that rise within our own hearts, feeling that pain that Bishop Oliveto must have felt. But they are not the only questions that we can ask in the face of such a hurtful experience especially in the light of these teachings from 1 Corinthians 13. And Bishop Oliveto said that she began praying about this experience and reflecting on possible answers to the questions that she was asking about the actions of others. Because you realize these are her colleagues who she works with regularly, right? These are people who she continues to be in relationship with. And as the Spirit of God began working on her own heart, 
she began to realize that the actions of others who had hurt her were most likely rooted in the denial of her own humanity, or perhaps in the ignorance of her own humanity. And that hurt. But rather than righteously pointing that finger and rising up with those declarations about what love is not, she began to turn the question inward so that she might be formed toward what love is. And she started asking herself in prayer this question, where and when do I deny another's is hard. But Bishop Oliveto is leading us. And in the months that followed, there were people who began attacking her or her right to be bishop in the United Methodist Church. And she admits that her immediate response was anger and impatience with them. But when those feelings within her rose, she remembered this experience and she started paying attention to those feelings as a nudge from God to turn away from what love is not and toward what love is. And she took it as a reminder to exercise empathy and love toward those who were saying hurtful things and to make their sense of loss and confusion the starting place for her relationship with them. Because as I said, she continues to be in relationship with them. This is at the very heart of the gospel. Mark 12, though that twofold commandment, love God and love others, and I would add, love ourselves. And I think that Bishop Oliveto's experience shows us just how hard it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ to learn to live out the actions of love from 1 Corinthians 13. And I think about this in the sense of our own call to discipleship during this special session of General Conference that is happening now. It started yesterday on February 23rd, and it ends on Tuesday, February 26th. And the mandate for this special session of General Conference is to find a way to preserve the unity of the church and to allow for as much contextualization around inclusion of LGBTQ persons as possible. And as we hear the debates, we want change. We long for a decision that allows space to include and affirm LGBTQ persons fully in all of our churches. And we work for justice. And yet I invite you to allow 1 Corinthians 13 to challenge us with questions like these. How will we love others? How will we hope for the best for others even when they disagree with us? And when we start to feel our own defenses going up because we feel our own humanity is being threatened, how can we find the grace and the courage to join with Bishop Oliveto in asking ourselves that deep and profound question of discipleship? Where and when?
do I deny another person's humanity? The first day of the special session of General Conference was yesterday, and the body spent the entire day in prayer. There were prayer sessions led by teams of two bishops representing four distinct regions of the world and our global United Methodist Connection. So there was a team from Europe and Eurasia, there was a team of bishops from Africa, a team of bishops from the United States, and then a team from the Philippines and Southeast Asia. Throughout the day, there were plenary sessions with the whole body, there were prayer stations, there was self-directed prayer, people were invited to fast during lunchtime, and then at the end of the day, the body received Holy Communion. And the Reverend Mark Holland from Mainstream UMC, who is one of our delegates from the Great Plains Annual Conference, and so he is there. He sent out a, a blog post early this morning that reports that indeed the tension was high. People know that this is an important day, days before us. And he acknowledged that when he first saw the schedule and he thought, oh, we're going to pray for a whole day. But he said it was worth it. That it was important. That it was spirit-filled to begin such a tension-filled season of work with intentionality around seeking God's presence. He also highlighted two things that I want to lift up for you. The General Conference hired a professional parliamentarian to advise the bishops who preside as chairpersons on how to rule and how to stay on task. And let me just tell you, as one who has never gone to General Conference, but I've sat through a few painful annual conferences when the bishops couldn't quite get the parliamentarian procedure correct, this is important and a gift from God. This will help. Mark also shared that that parliamentarian offered to meet individually with any delegates who wanted advice on proper parliamentary procedure, how to bring things to the floor, to make motions, to move things forward. The other thing that Mark shared um, is about our judicial council. So I think I've shared with you bits and pieces, but we as United Methodist Church are organized in our polity much like the government of the United States. And we have what would be the equivalent of a Supreme Court in our church system. They're called the judicial council. And they, um, have, they, they basically uh, make rulings on whether things are, correct according to our Constitution of the United Methodist Church. And they are working even as General Conference is meeting, and they put out a ruling yesterday that struck down a major portion of the modified traditional plan. And I think this might be important to share with you all today. Um, the, the part that they struck down would have created a global episcopacy committee. And so what that means is right now, bishops um, are under the supervision of the College of Bishops in their own jurisdiction or central conference. 
So last week after the second service, I had a question about um, if, if, how do we have a lesbian bishop who's openly a lesbian if in the United Methodist Church we don't officially ordain LGBTQ persons? And this is the answer. Her own jurisdiction elected her, right? They, her own annual conference voted to affirm her and ordain her, or her own jurisdiction elected her, and they are not going to challenge her election as a bishop. Therefore, she's a bishop. And no one else can do anything about it because the, this was tried. The, the challenge cannot come from outside her jurisdiction. Does that make any sense? Sort of. So the modified traditional plan was in, in that attempt to create the Global Episcopacy Committee, they were attempting to say, we will have global oversight over our bishops so anyone can hold any other bishop accountable. And the Judicial Council said that is not allowed according to our Constitution. This is, this is already like a win, guys. They already made that ruling when they uh, ruled in Bishop Oliveto's favor in the case that our, our jurisdiction was the one who tried to challenge it, uh, her election, but they had already said, no, she's a bishop in good standing. And so now, not only has that ruling been made, but the Judicial Council is saying, we have to change the Constitution if you want to have a, uh, a global Episcopacy Oversight Committee. So today, let me tell you what will happen today. Today is the day when the entire body will set the order for petitions to come before the general conference for vote. And so what will happen is the petitions will be grouped together when they're related to a plan for restructuring, and they will be considered independently when they are not. And the entire body will vote on whether they rank each petition or group of petitions as high or low priority. And the petitions that receive the highest percentage of high priority votes will be considered first when they begin voting on petitions, which will come tomorrow. Today, they will also elect a chairperson. Tomorrow then, Monday, is considered the legislative day. And so this is when all the petitions before the special session will be voted on. And again, they will come to the body to be voted on in the order of priority that is established today through the ranking of the petitions. And then Tuesday is the final day of the special session of General Conference. And on this day, um, the legislation that has been passed, if they're not done voting, they'll continue voting, but the hope is that they'll be done voting and that the legisl legislation that has been passed the day before will be enacted. So I want to leave you this morning with verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. You can see it up on the screen. But this is a verse that keeps running through my mind as I reflect on this special session of General Conference. I don't think that this verse means that love is naive or that it steps passively aside when someone is being hurt. But I do think it means that Love never stops believing the best for others. That challenging call to Christian discipleship, that love never gives up, that love is hopeful. And our children in Sunday school and Wednesday night programming have made some beautiful hearts out of um, crowns. And David, if you can put those up on the screen. 
they made these um, for each person in our congregation to take home, and you might have already received one if you're in a Sunday school class or if you're in a Wednesday night class because the kids had put them out with um, some cards that they made. So you might have already received um, one of these. But if you haven't gotten one yet, you're invited to pick one up today following worship. The kids will be out there selling Millie's flowers, and they'll have a basket of hearts made out of crowns on their table. So you can stop by and buy some flowers to support their ministry and pick up a little heart at the same time. So if you already have one, don't take another one because they ran out of steam to make like 500. But there should be hopefully enough for everybody to have one. If you don't have one yet, pick one up and take it home. And we want to invite you to take this heart with you to remind you of God's love for you. To remind you of the love of this community of faith. We want you to take this heart with you to remind you of our commitment here at Chum as a reconciling congregation. But we also want to invite you to take this heart with you to remind you of your call to love others with the love of Christ. And so I'm going to invite us again today to close in prayer, but today I want to invite you to simply stay where you're at and move your shoulders, get comfortable in your seat, close your eyes. And then open your hands in front of you in a posture to receive. You might shrug your shoulders. You might put your feet flat on the floor. And then begin breathing slowly and deeply. As you become aware of your breath, I invite you to picture how much God loves you. And maybe it is that you imagine sunlight is streaming all around you, enfolding you in warmth. Maybe you imagine a rainbow of colors wrapping you in a hug. Maybe you remember a memory of love from your childhood, from your young adulthood, from your current age, a time when you felt particularly beloved. And then when you breathe in, breathe in the deep overwhelming love of God. And when you breathe out, share that love with the world. It is in the name of the triune God, creator, redeemer, sustainer, that we pray.